Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where all St. Patrick's Day events have been canceled due to three confirmed COVID-19 cases in New Orleans, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Catholic students from Hot Springs are getting a ride on the 120-mile trip to Little Rock Catholic High Schools thanks to a school bus provided by St. John the Baptist Church in Hot Springs. Thank you for joining us for Episode 2 of Clear and Convincing, State of Mississippi versus Curtis Giovanni Flowers. On July 16, 1996, Bertha Tardy, Carmen Rapey, Robert Golden, and Derek Stewart were shot during a suspected armed robbery of Tardy Furniture in Winona, Mississippi. Miss Tardy, Miss Rigby, and Mr. Golden died at the scene. 16-year-old Derek Stewart died six days later at a hospital in Jackson, Mississippi. A former employee, Curtis Flowers, became a suspect due to his troubled history at Tardy Furniture and his inconsistent statements regarding his whereabouts on the morning of the murders. Several witnesses placed Flowers near the crime scene that morning and shortly after the murders were discovered, his uncle reported a gun stolen from his vehicle also that morning. We'll talk about the murder, <clears throat> excuse me, murders at Tardy Furniture, the investigation, indictment, and trials of Curtis Flowers, and the U.S. Supreme Court decision that vacated his sixth conviction. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. Trying to adjust to the time change. You might lie about that, man. This time, dude, it's weird, though, because every one of them always gets me. Like, I'm always, my body clock, clock's always completely thrown off by even gaining an hour. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mine is, too. So, and I'm not a morning person, which makes it worse. <laughs> yeah, me, me I, I wouldn't say I'm a morning person. I'm sure uh, Haley would probably disagree with me, but I wouldn't say I'm a morning person myself. Well, your time in the military probably kind of um, eased that, yeah. Yeah, it kind of instilled it 
in you. Yeah, exactly. So, because uh, my dad went to military academies, Merchant Marine Academy, and then he was in the Coast Guard. And so he was always an early riser until mm-hmm. the last five years or so. <clears throat> right, so. right. All right, well, we have a couple of updates, and then we'll get on with uh, tonight's case. Ooh, we have okay. in the uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, the challenge by Maureen Faulkner, Daniel Faulkner's widow, of the Krasner DA's office. A judge has now been appointed to oversee the conflict investigation for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Okay. So that process will begin. How long it will take to complete, I don't know. Okay. So, uh, but he's he's going to look into the allegations raised of conflicts of interest due to uh, key employees of the district attorney's office at one time having represented Mumia Abu-Jamal. One was part of his uh, – one of his support committees of some kind mm-hmm. um, and has advocated on his behalf in the past. So we'll have to see how that, how that plays out. Hmm. Okay. <clears throat> so – and then uh, some of you may have never heard of this, but – it meant a lot to me when I saw it today. Um, a few, several years ago, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant were sued over the opening chords for Stairway to Heaven. Okay. Uh, an attorney who had become a trustee for a deceased songwriter's uh, estate claimed that the opening chords of Stairway with Tavern were lifted from a song written by his client uh, many years before and that Jimmy Page heard it and used it in Stairway to Heaven. A jury uh-huh. trial resulted in a verdict on behalf of Mr. Page and Mr. Plant, who share songwriting credits. Um, that was appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal the panel had ordered a new trial because mm-hmm. of flaws in jury instructions. However, the full Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal uh, accepted review of the case, and they have now affirmed the jury verdict in favor of Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. Okay. And the attorney who represented the estate is trying to decide whether he wants to appeal uh, any further because his next step would have to be the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. So, and this is actually a case that I think we might look at later this year Mm -hmm. because the attorney representing the estate has quite a colorful history. Really? Yes. And I'm assuming by colorful, you don't mean good. Not necessarily, no. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, 
and there there are a lot of materials, a lot of documents online. Mm-hmm. So uh, we may do that and kind of take a break from criminal cases and look at a purely, you know, the so, purely intellectual copyright aspect because it is pretty interesting. Yeah, that'd be an interesting little uh, change of pace there. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, so that's really all the all the new all the new updates that we have. Uh, if something breaks now, which is the judge was appointed last week, but I didn't find out about it until after we were off the air. <laughs> so, okay. <clears throat> so if anything breaks, I'll just I'll you know update it next week. Okay. All right. So we are um, we are going to talk tonight about the case of State of Mississippi versus Curtis Giovanni Flowers. Uh, the murders at Tardy Furniture occurred on July 16, 1996. Tardy Furniture is in a small <clears throat> town in northern Mississippi. I think they're between Jackson and Memphis, Memphis, and they may be somewhere around Grenada. Okay. Okay. Um, they're on along I-55, so I've passed through there, but I've never stopped there. I used to stop in Grenada and then continue on to Memphis. Okay, I got Because Grenada is where I need gas. And um, the victims in the case were Bertha Tardy. She was uh, from Winona. She was born May 8, 1937. She was the owner and operator of Tardy Furniture Company since 1985, a graduate of Winona High School, and a graduate of the New York School of Design, Interior Design. Uh, apparently, she married the she married into the Tardy family and helped her husband by giving client, uh, customers and clients design advice. And then, when he was ready to tie, retire, she bought the store from him. Okay. So, um, she was an active member of the Moore Memorial United Methodist Church, where she had served as chairman of the finance committee for five years. She was a teacher of children and youth and a chairperson person of the Commission on Education, as well as treasurer of the United Methodist Women Group. Um, she was also past president and member of the board of directors and chairperson of the selection committee for Montgomery County Habitat for Humanity. Uh, She was on the Montgomery County Economic Council as a treasurer and also as a past president. And she was a member of Leadership Mississippi. She was named 1989 Retail Person of the Year and served as president of the Downtown Merchants Association which she spearheaded obtaining grant money to renovate downtown Winona. Um, She was survived by her husband, Thomas Walter Tardy Jr. of Winona, her daughter, Roxanne Miller-Ballard, Roxanne's husband, of course, and her grandson, Jeremy Ballard of Winona, Mississippi. Um, That was from her obituary published in the Winona Times, on August 1st, 1986. Okay. And the uh, next was Carmen Briscoe 
Rigby. Uh, she was also from Winona. She was born April 1st, 1951, and died also July 16th, 1996. She was a member of the Community Baptist Church near Winona, and she was bookkeeper at Tardy Furniture Company. She was survived by her husband, Benny L. Rigby, her sons, Benji and Brian Rigby, her parents, Luther D. and Catherine Briscoe, and a brother, George Briscoe, who in 1996 lived in Slidell, Louisiana. Hmm. So pretty much everybody you mentioned so far, a pretty active member in the community. Correct. Miss Tardy and Miss Rigby were both active because Miss Rigby was active with her son's school and sports and things of that nature. Um, and this is a small town, about 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, then we have Robert Lee Golden, who was also of Winona. He was born August 13, 1953. He was a member of Pink Flower Baptist Church, which was near McCarley. He was a laborer and had just started working at Tardy Furniture Company. Uh, He was a graduate of Winona High School in 1973, and he graduated uh, in 1977 from Mississippi Valley State University at Itabina. Mm -hmm. He was survived by his wife, Shirley of Winona, uh, son Christopher Golden of Decatur, Georgia, Randy Golden of Winona, three brothers, Jerry Lee of Ripley, Tennessee, Willie George of Winona, and Billy Joe of Great Lakes, Illinois, and a sister, Connie M. Shelton, who lived in Alabama. And then finally, we have Derek Everett Bobo Stewart. Uh, he was born May 24th, 1980, so he was only 16. He had just turned uh-huh. 16. Um, he actually died on July 22nd, 1996 at a hospital in Jackson, Mississippi. He attended Shiloh Baptist Church near Vaden. He played shortstop and pitcher for the Winona High School baseball team and was their leading hitter. He was a member of FCA, VICA, and the Gifted Art Club. He attended Winona Academy as a freshman and was voted most handsome, most most athletic, and Mr. Junior, Junior Winona Academy. He also played junior high football and was moved to the high school team during that year. His survivors were his father, Randy Stewart, his mother, Kathy Winters of Starkville, his one brother, Derek Stewart of Starkville, his maternal grandparents, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Clarence Doc Lofton of Vaden, and he had been preceded, preceded in death by his grandparents, Everett Stewart and Dorothy Stewart Downs. Hmm. So those are, those are the victims. Uh, both Derek... And Robert Golden had just started working for Tardy Furniture. Right. I mean, good Lord. A sixth man. Yeah. 
I mean, they were uh, just it, it blows my mind because it was only their first or second day of work. Oh, dang. When you say just started, and you mean just started. I just started. I, it, it may have been, it may have been their first day of work. Wow. Yeah. And they were hired to replace Curtis Flowers. Ah, got gotcha. you. We'll get into now. Um, Curtis comes from a large family, also from Winona. He has several sisters and brothers. I think the total children is about nine or maybe ten. Um, his father and mother, Archie and Lola, are very well-respected in the community, uh, very well-liked in the community. Most of, he, most of his siblings are well-liked and well-known in the community. Um, they have a big presence in Winona and in Montgomery County, uh, partially through the fact that they apparently the family had a gospel group that performed in and around Winona and Montgomery County. Hmm. Uh, at the time of the murders, Curtis was living with a girlfriend. And he had briefly been employed by Tardy Furniture, apparently while loading some batteries either for trucks or golf carts or some large equipment batteries. He loaded them improperly. They fell from the truck or fell on the truck and were damaged. And after that occurred, Mrs. Tardy told him that his wages were now going to be withheld to pay for the damage that he caused. Absolutely. Um, So his response to that was to stop showing up at work. Uh, Always a good choice. And then when he contacted Mrs. Tardy and said, Mrs. Tardy, do I still have a job? She, of course, said, no, you don't. Right. And your last paycheck is not enough to cover the damage you did, so you owe me money. Oh. <laughs> so uh, while he downplayed this for police, and I believe at one of his multiple trials he testified, and he downplayed it, but you know, I can imagine he had just started the job. I can imagine being told you're – first or maybe second paycheck is going to be withheld for damage you caused. You might be a little upset. And then you don't show up at full work, perhaps thinking if I don't show up, then, you know, I don't know what he thought. I mean... Don't miss me. I don't know. (laughs) So... And he, you know, he tries to claim, oh, I understood why she'd fire me, but um, <clears throat> that was, yeah, that was his short career at Tardy Furniture. Um, so the events of July 16, 1996, Mrs. Tardy talked to a gentleman by the name of Sam Jones about training uh, Robert Golden and, and Derek Stewart. Jones agreed. And this was around 9 o'clock in the morning. 
so he said he was going to head on over. He arrived sometime around 10 o'clock, a little bit after 10. In his trial testimony, he thought he arrived earlier, but the first call received reporting the murders was at 1021. Oh, okay. And he said it took him about it took about 10 or 15 minutes to kind of recover and then go find somebody to call police. Um, he found, when he arrived, he found Mrs. Tardy, Mr. Golden, and Ms. Rigby all, di- all dead. Um, I believe Mr. Golden, Derek Stewart, and Ms. Rigby were all in the same general area around the counter and Mrs. Tardy was found somewhat some distance away. Perhaps she was trying to flee. And she was the oldest. So she I think they think she might have been trying to flee but she wasn't fast enough. Right. Um they did find a footprint in blood near uh, one of the victim's bodies. They found 380 shell casings and bullets at the scene and in the victims. Flower's uncle, about an hour after the murder, was reported or discovered by Mr. Jones. Uh, His uncle, Doyle Simpson, contacted police and reported a car stolen I mean, a gun stolen from his vehicle, which was at another business in Winona. Police questioned Flowers, of course, because he had just been fired recently, and his paycheck was found on Mrs. Tardy's desk. Money was all yeah, missing. You may not want to leave something with your name on it at a crime scene you just did. Just saying. Right. That That is an it, it It's almost like... I think what the police suspected was that he came saying he was going to pick up his check. And perhaps she said, well, you owe me for the damage you did. I need you to sign the check, and I'm not giving it to you. That that could have led to him. And that would explain why it's out on her desk. Yeah, absolutely. So, Even though it doesn't um, necessarily is, explain why he didn't take it, you would think that he would have taken it, but who knows? Well, in the in the in the um, I guess heat of the moment after killing the people, we don't know what we don't know what order, and I don't think there was any any real evidence that would have given anybody the idea of who was killed first and who was killed last. So right. he may have in the in the excitement or in the heat of the moment, he may have exploded, killed everybody, and then fled. Right. In order to avoid being seen, because this is apparently in downtown Winona. It's not out on, you know, the outskirts of town. So, and in fact, there were numerous witnesses 
who came forward and placed flowers either near Simpson's vehicle, near where Simpson worked, or near Tardy Furniture that morning. Um, Flowers was questioned a second time, and in his second interview, he gave a an inconsistent account. Excuse me. In his first account, he said he got up about 9.30 and kind of hung around the house and then went to his sister's house, which was a short distance from where he was living, at around noon. And in this second questioning, he said he slept until noon and then hung around the house and then went to his sister's at 1.30 or 2 o'clock. So he gave inconsistent time frames. Right. Witnesses who had seen him near uh, Dole Simpson's car saw him at 7.15. And the witnesses hmm. who saw him at Tardy Furniture saw him somewhere around... Nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning. Um, and again, the circumstances of Flowers firing and the fact that the check was found on Bertha Tardy's desk. Also, shortly after being questioned, Flowers moved to Texas. John I've never been able flowers. to find any logical and or reasonable explanation for why he moved Yeah, John answered fled. Um, but sometime in August, after some of the, I think, forensic evidence was processed and reported by the crime lab, he was extradited back to Mississippi. He was arrested in Texas, extradited back to Mississippi, and subsequently indicted for the four murders at, at Tardy Furniture. Now, the, the forensic evidence that was found was mm-hmm. uh, there was a particle of gunpowder residue found on the back of Flowers' hands, okay. which I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, was uh, done when he was initially interviewed immediately after the murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, gunpowder residue means... He, it can mean one of three scenarios. He fired a gun. He came into contact with something that was around a gun that was fired. Or somebody fired a gun at him. Okay. Uh, and it was a single particle. It wasn't, it wasn't significant gunshot residue. But that's not really material. I mean... It's gunshot residue is gunshot residue. Right, absolutely. It's perhaps one bit of gunshot residue that withstood the hand washing. Or after he washed his hand, he came in contact with something, an item of clothing or shoes or some other thing in his environment that was around that gun. Or maybe he got the particle on there when he was disposing of the gun because that was never found. Okay. Um, the police gathered fired rounds from Simpson's mother's backyard, which Simpson said he had fired from the 380. Um, and those were consistent with rounds that were found at the crime scene. 
and consistent with some of the bullets retrieved from the victims. Okay. Um, It's not an absolute match. The only way to make an absolute match is to compare fired rounds from the victims to rounds fired by crime evidence ballistics technicians from the actual weapon. And if no actual Uh weapons found, you could say consistent. And I think ballistics, you, you say consistent, you don't say it's a match. Or that it's, you know, this gun to the exclusion. It could be any 380. They never mention a, a maker either. They never said whether it was a, a, a Beretta, a Glock, a Smith & Wesson, or anything like that. So, hmm. And then a search warrant, which means the police got enough probable cause <laughs> at some point. Uh, a search warrant found somewhere between 235 and $255 hidden in a headboard at his girlfriend's home where he had been living. The amounts reported have been inconsistent uh, in the different opinions that I've right. read. Some say 235 some say 255 I had one that said 285 um, The estimate from Miss Tardy's daughter was that, the, was that the furniture store should have had about $400 cash on hand. And the only... There were no bills ever recovered. There were coins. Mm-hmm. And nothing detailed how much of a bank of coins were kept. To do the math from that $400. Um, But the official estimates from the first trial was that about $287 in cash had been stolen. And then the shoe print at the crime scene was consistent with a a size 10.5 Fila Grant Hill shoe. And a Ten and a half Fila Grant Hill shoebox without a shoes was found in the girlfriend's house. Right. So, so that's the problem. Um, now, yeah. So those those that's the that's the forensic evidence. It's circumstantial. Um, at some point prior to, I believe, the first trial. A fellow inmate named Odell Hallman came forward and said that Curtis Flowers confessed to killing all four victims at Tardy Furniture. And Odell Hallman made himself a deal Mm -hmm. to testify against Curtis Flowers. So a confession is actually direct evidence. Not circumstantial. Yeah, but it's not so a confession that, be, from the source, so wouldn't that be circumstantial? No, 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 no. It's a con. It, it is Curtis Flowers told Odell Hallman, "I killed those four people at Tardy Furniture Store." Yeah, That's but you still trust any criminal to tell the truth. 
You know what I'm saying? Well, why do you, yeah, but why is it when somebody like Curtis Flowers or Damian Eccles or Jason Baldwin or Rodney Reed or Stephen Avery say, I'm innocent, they're convicted criminals. But when they say they're innocent, they're telling the truth. True, true. I see your point. I mean, if, if convicted criminals have motives to lie, then you can't believe somebody who's been convicted of a crime who says Fair they're innocent. Point. I see your point here. At, you know, I mean, um, maybe try and corroborate what they're saying. And when they give you the, you know, odd stories that they sometimes give you about different things, like Stephen Avery's story about people coming in his trailer and getting blood out of his sink to plant in Teresa Hallback's RAV4, you know, I, I, I think there should be some skepticism about a scenario like that. Very true. Good point. So, but, uh, and, you know, credibility is something to, to determine by the jury. And I'm sure Mr. Hallman, he's like a pretty... Uh, got pretty much a reputation in in Winona, which is a small town, and so I'm sure his his uh, cross examination was entertaining. Oh, I'm sure it was. <laughs> so, do you mute yourself because you're under your breath going, "What a bitch! What a bitch!" No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> See, what I'm trying to figure out, like I said, I, I just. The way you characterized it, indirect and direct, or circumstantial and direct. The reason why I was wondering direct. why it wouldn't be considered circumstantial is just because it's not coming directly from the source, so that's why I was wondering. Well, no, it's not coming – well, it's coming from a witness who personally saw Curtis Flowers – who personally heard Curtis Flowers say, I killed the four people at Tardy Furniture. Right. That's what makes it direct. Just as as somebody witnessing, say, you know, say Derek Stewart had survived. Mm-hmm. And he had said it was Curtis Flowers that did it. That would be direct evidence. Apparently, he, I don't think he ever regained consciousness or was ever able to be, to speak to police or give them any information. But had he by some chance been able to identify the person, that would have been direct evidence, even if it had to come in through police officers because he had passed away. Okay. All right, but yeah, it's it's direct evidence because it's it's a firsthand observation. Okay, now that makes a little bit more sense now. Of a confession by the accused. Okay. That's what makes it direct. Um, okay, that makes sense now. And and then to go along with the other circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. So. So it's pretty damning. At this um. Point. Yeah. So in 1997, he's uh, Curtis Flowers, as as everybody's heard and read on the internet, 
Curtis Flowers has been tried six times for these four murders. And for one reason or another, none of those convictions have withstood either direct appeal in Mississippi Supreme Court or subsequently appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So um, his first trial in 1997 was for the murder only of Bertha Tardy. His attorneys requested a change of venue, which was granted to Lee County, Mississippi. Right. Uh, The trial was held, but the prosecutor in the course of the trial basically admitted evidence and testimony related to the murders of all four victims. And so the Mississippi Supreme Court reversed Flowers' conviction in that case on direct appeal because of the other evidence of the other murders being presented at that trial. Now, prior to that being actually reversed, in 1999, they brought Flowers to trial for Robert Golden's murder. The defense again requested a change of venue, which was granted to Harrison County, Mississippi, which is on, is on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, down in my neck of the woods. Right. Okay. Um, that, too, was reversed on direct appeal, again, because during the course of that trial, evidence of the murders of Ms. Rigby... Ms. Tardy and Derek Stewart were presented, and that was uh, made it an unfair trial, basically. Oh, dear Lord. So, that made the same trial number three. Uh, well, actually, that one, it's kind of understandable because the the conviction as to the murder of Bertha Tardy had not yet been reversed. It was reversed in 2000. Okay. And that trial... Went to, that case went to trial. Robert Golden case went to trial in 1999. Hmm. Okay. So the the prosecutor may have thought he saw maybe where the wind was going to blow, but he didn't know for sure. And the the strategy worked the first time. Use it for the second time. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. again. But the you know that error was fixed by the Mississippi Supreme Court. Well, absolutely. I just can't believe they made the same mistake twice. Again, they didn't know that they didn't know the 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 uh, they didn't know. I'm trying to think of the right word. The the seriousness of the mistake. Right. They didn't know that the strategy would be found to be unfair. Or to Uh render the trial unfair at the time they tried with the same strategy. So the third trial, uh, that took place in 2004. And that time it was for the murders of Bertha Tardy, Common Raby, Robert Golden, and Derek Stewart. Okay. The defense did not request a change of venue. And the case was... Uh, he, of course, Flowers was again tried, convicted, and sentenced to death, uh, this time for all four murders. 
Mm-hmm. But the uh, case, the conviction was reversed again on direct appeal. Now, this is something, how many cases have we looked at? I can only think of one other case, two other cases maybe, where there was actually a reversal on direct appeal. Very true. It doesn't but happen often. This is pretty unusual. Yeah. Um, We're in uncharted and Yeah. And this time it was based on a peremptory strike of an African-American juror or perhaps two African-American jurors in that trial uh, that was not done, was not a, a non-racial or the Mississippi Supreme Court did not feel that the, the reasons given were sufficiently racial. Right. Non, non-racial. Or sufficiently, yeah, uh, that were sufficient to overcome the presumption that they were done because of the, right. the jurors' races. And yeah. um, I, I'm going to admit right now, the only direct appeal opinion I actually could read was the sixth trial because these direct appeal opinions are nearly a hundred pages a piece. Damn. (laughs) The the Mississippi Supreme court was not rubber stamping anything. Um, They weren't, Uh, you know, they, they were going through the facts, the law and applying a lot of those facts. And extremely thorough. I was actually very impressed. So it was reversed. The uh, next trial occurred in 2007, and it was for the murders of Bertha Tardy, Carmen Rigby, Robert Golden, and Derek Stewart. Again, the defense did not request a change of venue, so the case remained in uh, Montgomery County. The state for that case did not seek the death penalty based on a witness produced by the defense. However, there's no detail about who the witness was or what that witness had to say, Uh Um, but it, it led to the state deciding not to go after the death penalty in that particular trial. Okay. Um, During the course of the trial, an alternate juror by the name of Annette Purcell, it was discovered that she had been receiving phone calls from Flowers from jail and that she was on his visitors list at jail and had visited him. Oh, damn. And apparently while that was being investigated by the court, his attorneys actually produced a note from him that basically said, um, I know this lady's really honest. We got to fight for her. Mm. Um, So she was questioned with the judge and she admitted to the judge that she lied about knowing flowers and visiting him. 
Right. She was charged with perjury, and she pled guilty to perjury. And that is perjury. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Um, because she, when she went through voir dire and was chosen as an alternate juror, it was on the basis that she didn't know flowers and she could be fair and impartial. Hmm. Damn. And then during during deliberations, a gentleman by the name of James Bibb, who was also on the jury, uh, he told jurors that I was in I was at a lawnmower repair shop on the day of the murders, and the police did not do any investigation. I I saw everything, and evidence against Curtis Flowers was planted. Oh Jesus Christ! So that case resulted in a mistrial. Yeah. And Mr. Bibb was also charged with perjury, but the district attorney elected not to pursue it. Because he also, during Voidier, said, uh, I don't know much about the case, and I can be fair and impartial. But then he went into the jury and basically told the jury, introduced outside information into the jury. Uh-huh. So, um, and, and you know, the irony here is that because it was done in Curtis Flower's favor, it would be helpful to Curtis Flowers. Advocates don't see the problem. There's a problem if anybody lies to get on on a jury for any reason. Whether right. it's to benefit the defendant or to benefit the state. It's it's wrong if you lie to get on a civil jury to benefit the plaintiff or to benefit the defendant. It just shouldn't be done. And then uh, 2008, his fifth trial, also for all four murders, no change of venue, and it resulted in a mistrial as well. Hmm. This this is just um, neck-bitten, by the way. Well, uh, almost, almost. But you okay. know, I, again, people are you know a lot of a lot of the stuff I read and a lot of stuff I listened to last week and over the weekend. Why do they keep trying this man? Why do they keep? Well, this is these are four people that were murdered, and the prosecutor believes. And the investigators believe that the person who murdered them was Curtis Flowers. Yeah, by no means. And I mean, Curtis I Flowers has been indicted. I think these people are getting. I think these people are getting acquittals and uh, mistrials mixed up or something. Right, and a mistrial, and like I said, I mean the 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 reason for the mistrial in the fourth trial is clear. James Bibb introduce outside information and more likely than not James Bibb was not going to vote guilty right he was a plant and let's be honest if this uh, dude is trying to stack the deck then this dude's probably guilty more often than not 
Why else would you feel the need I, to stack deck with people that are going to see your way? Correct. I I totally agree. And um, so his sixth trial, which is the subject, the main subject of tonight's episode, uh, was held in 2010. And once again, uh, the defense did not seek a change of venue. Um, to me, this is something of a problem for both sides because it is a small community and the victims and Mr. Flowers have Boku relatives, family friends, and people who knew them. And so it makes picking a jury that much more difficult. Right. And it makes picking a a jury that's going to be fair and impartial to both sides. And another thing that gets lost in all the discussion of this is that the state is equally entitled to a fair and impartial jury. True. And jury selection is not, the jury is not picked solely by the state. Mm-hmm. The defendant's counsel has equal opportunity to pick jurors that they believe are going to be fair and impartial and to use peremptory strikes to get rid of jurors that they don't believe can be fair and impartial. Right. You know, I went to my jury service at criminal court. I was pulled into one jury panel in the four weeks that I was there because I went one day for four weeks or two days a week for four weeks. No, one day a week for four weeks, whatever it was. And I ended up the last day getting pulled into one panel, questioned by the prosecutors, questioned by the court, questioned by the defense attorney. And then they went into the back. They told us we had 45 minutes, go, you know, get a drink, take a walk, get something to eat, whatever you want to do, and be back here at a certain time. We came back, we sat back in our assigned seats, and the judge basically said, if I call, you know, if I call your number, you go back to the jury room, and they'll give you further instructions. Right. And then he said, um, he called several people, and they went up and went down to the jury room, and then he called some more people, and they went up and went down to the jury room. And then I was called, my number was called, and I went down to the jury room. We were the last ones called, and they said, okay, you can go. Thank you. Goodbye. You're done. So I was struck, and I don't know whether I was struck for cause by the prosecutor or the defense. I don't know if I was struck by peremptory by the prosecutor or the defense. Okay. I don't know why I I wasn't picked to serve. I just wasn't picked to serve. Right. You know. And um, I I think I told you the the attorney who was the defense attorney was John Fuller, who represented Cardell Hayes, who we talked about. Yeah, I remember you saying something. Yeah. So, 
Um, so it was very, you know, it was an interesting process. And, um, you know, that was it. And I was, I was not picked. And I got on with my life. It didn't, you know, it didn't hurt my feelings or anything. Right. So, Hmm. and, you know, if I have to do it again at criminal court, because you don't get, you don't get a pass until you actually see, until you're actually seated on a jury. Oh, okay. And once you get, once you sit on a jury, you get a lifetime pass. My dad had sat on a jury several years ago and he got another summons uh, like right after I moved back to New Orleans mm-hmm. that he called the number and he said I served on a jury on, you know, on this date um, I thought I was done and they said yeah you got that in error don't worry oh. about it you know being and I'm going to say this you know knock on wood here but being 29 I've never been jury summoned It'll get you. I had a summons in when I lived in Jefferson Parish. And then about three or four months after that, I was summoned in federal district court. Damn. And then when I moved back to Louisiana, I was summoned for civil district court in Orleans, where I'm living now. And then like, Two years later was when I got the the criminal court summons. Damn, you're just like lucky, ain't you? <laughs> yep. And the criminal court's the first time I've ever had to actually, you know, go on a panel. The all the other times I reported on one or two days and finished out the day at about two o'clock in the afternoon, and they didn't need me. Right. So. All right, so okay, I'm, I'm I've digressed enough. Sorry. So the issue in this case um, was peremptory challenges of five African American jurors by the prosecutor. The Batson claim raised by Curtis Flowers' counsel the time of the peremptory strikes were reviewed. What the Batson procedure is, is that the plaintiff makes a prima facie case, which is there are six African-American jurors on the panel, and the prosecutor struck five of them. That's a prima facie case. Pretty easy. Um Another thing that's gotten lost is that during the cause process, a large number of jurors of both races were eliminated. Really? Um, For cause, for cause is usually uh, people who don't read or write or speak good English, people who are elderly, who have hearing deficits, who have physical uh, deficits that would make them sitting in a courtroom for hours on end uncomfortable or impossible to do, or that would make it hard for them to concentrate. 
um, people who take care of very young children or are caretaker for an elderly person who can't be away from home for several hours for several days on end. Those are the kind of things that, that end up – and people – People who have felony convictions, uh, because in some states they use not just voter records, but they also use driver's license. Ah, okay. And so when you combine those two, you end up with felons who aren't eligible to serve. Right, right. So that, and a lot of jurors get, you know, get the biggest group. When, you know, when my jury thing, the biggest group was likely the four cause people because they were elderly or they took care of kids or, and, you know, you still have to come report for your service. It's just that you won't necessarily be picked for a trial because of these, you know, these reasons. Right, you'll probably be dismissed pretty early. Right. And, you know, I understand, like, I remember when I, the first day I reported, there was a young man who was a an intern at one of the hospitals. And he's trying to explain to the jury commissioner, I'm an intern at this hospital. I work 12 hours every day. I cannot be away from my job to sit here all day. You know, is there something I can do? And the jury commissioners, I'm really sorry, but no. I mean, you have to serve. So there should be, and there should be, if somebody has young children, they should be able to go the first day to say, I have young children. Even if I get picked, I can't serve, and they should not have to stay, you know. Because it is an inconvenience to to have to wait to be picked for a panel. And I was there four days, and it was the fourth day when I was finally picked for a panel. Do you remember if the uh, gentleman who the gentleman who uh, worked in the hospital did he end up getting picked, or was he released pretty quickly? We were released that day, actually pretty early. Because there were only like two or three divisions that had jury trials scheduled that particular day. Mm -hmm. And all three divisions were able to um, – uh, were either didn't, didn't go forward that day or, or the cases pled out. Okay. So we were able to get to zero – needing zero jurors uh, by about 1130-ish. Or 11 o'clock. So he was able to leave and go to work that day. What happened, he may have just picked other days. And he may have picked days that he got off or took off from the hospital. Because I never saw him again. Or maybe he decided to roll the dice and and never show back up and see if they ever found out. I don't know. I felt for him though, because, like I said, I, I think that certain individuals who get summons should be able to go in, and even though they're qualified, 
for extraordinary reasons like being a physician and being an intern at a hospital in an ER or in a surgical floor or in any area of a hospital, you should be able to, you know, even though you're qualified to get sitting around waiting to go on a panel to even be picked. Right. So, um, so okay, so here are the peremptory challenges for the five African-American jurors who were struck by the prosecutor in this sixth murder case against Curtis Flowers. The first was Carolyn Wright. The reasons the prosecutor cited were that she knew 34 witnesses at the trial. I know on the outline I have defense witnesses, but it was actually 34 witnesses on either side. Um, she worked with Flower's father at a Walmart at one time, and the judge described it as the smallest Walmart there is because it's Winona, Mississippi. And she had also been sued by Tardy Furniture, I believe, after the murders occurred. The next was Diane Copper. She had worked with Flowers' father and sister. She knew several members of Flowers' family. She lived near the Flowers' family. She stated she leaned toward the Flowers' side. And she also knew several witnesses in the case. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go ahead and get you. uh, Yeah. Anyhow. Uh, the next was Flancy Jones. She was related to Flowers by marriage, I believe, squared. One of his sisters was married to her nephew, and one of her family members had married into the Flowers family. It was a convoluted – it was almost like – when I was growing up, we had some play cousins. They weren't real cousins because my dad was not related to their parents in any way, shape, or form. But mm-hmm. my dad and the, you know, my dad and their father was were so close they were like brothers. So right. we referred to these kids as our cousins. They weren't our cousins. Um, although we have a lot of cousins in Delaware. Because the Revels and the Williamses were both very prolific families. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, um, and then um, she also was late for jury selection two times. She gave inconsistent responses regarding the death penalty on her questionnaire and in questions asked during voir dire. And she admitted to lying on her questionnaire to get out of jury service. Well, damn. Then there was Tasha Cunningham. She had worked with Flower's sister. She lied about the proximity of her workstation to Flower's sister's workstation. She claimed that they were on opposite ends of the line when... Mm the HR supervisor from the manufacturer where they worked 
came in and said, no, they work right next to each other. Oh, damn. And then she also gave inconsistent responses regarding the death penalty. She initially said she could not um, she could not sentence someone to death under any circumstances. And then she kind of said, well, maybe I could consider it. But then she again went back to, no, I can't, I can't do it under any circumstances. Right. And then Edith Burnside knew Flowers and members of his family. Flowers was friends with her son or sons. She also had lived near Flowers' family. And she had been sued by Tawny Furniture, but she tried to conceal that by claiming there was a dispute over her account, but it didn't result in a falling out. And likewise, she gave inconsistent responses, initially saying she couldn't judge anybody and she couldn't send somebody to death, and then saying, well, if it's a law, I guess I can consider it, and then going back to say, no, I just don't want to judge anybody, and you know, I, I can't send anybody to death. In the hearing, after hearing all of the, the prosecutors' uh, reasons for striking these particular jurors, Finding that those reasons were sufficiently uh, non-race related, right? Uh, he found that the the prosecutor had not committed any Batson violations and denied the defense's request um, under Batson. Okay. The case went to trial. Uh, you know, multiple witnesses testified and. Since the conviction was vacated by the U.S. Supreme Court, um, there's not really any any reason to go into detail about about those issues because uh, they're moot now. Right, absolutely. But after he was convicted and sentenced to death, uh, the case did go to back to the Mississippi Supreme Court for the sixth time on direct appeal, and the Mississippi Supreme Court found that the reasons given by the prosecutor for his each of the strikes of those five jurors were acceptable race-neutral reasons. Right. Um, they also found that the Flowers Council's representations regarding disparate questioning of jurors and disparate questioning of African-American jurors was – a misrepresentation of the record. For example, uh, they claim there was disparate questioning of jurors, yet Carolyn Wright was only asked three follow-up questions by the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Um, the and under the circumstances where you where you're trying getting ready to try a case in a small town with a defendant from that town, victims from that town, and everybody knows everybody. Um, you are going to have to follow up on answers given while the court questioned the voir dire. Right. And when you have people on voir dire who say, I know Flower's family, who do you know? How do you know them? How well have friend? you known them? I'm, oh, yeah. How well do you know them? Exactly. So yeah. that is, you know, that's something. And the the defense probably asked disparate questions to the white jurors. 
right. or jurors who knew members of the Tardy, Rigby, Golden, and Stewart families, for that matter. Investigators involved in the case. Et cetera, et cetera. So um, it also found that uh, Flowers Council's claim that only African-Americans were asked about lawsuits by Tardy Furniture was mistaken uh, yeah, because yeah. the judge asked, the, the trial judge asked, has anybody here ever been sued by Tardy Furniture? And only two of the jurors responded, you know, that, yes, I was. So that question was asked of the entire panel. Um, the uh, the uh, Supreme Court, Mississippi Supreme Court, also found that the um, white jurors who were retained by the prosecution were not similarly situated to the African-American jurors who were struck because the African-American jurors had multiple race-neutral reasons. So even if they were similarly situated in knowing Flowers' family or, for example, there was a, a, a woman and a young man who worked at the local bank, so they saw members of the Flowers' family whenever they came in the bank. But they weren't similarly situated because they hadn't been sued by Tardy Furniture. Um, they hadn't lived in the same neighborhood as Tardy as the Flowers. You know, they and they hadn't given inconsistent answers regarding the death penalty. Right. So um that was the the thing and Mississippi Supreme Court affirmed the conviction and flower sentence. Flowers appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I think this would be a good time to take a quick break. Okay. Well, ladies wow. and gentlemen. We go to the... Mm-hmm. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Clear and Convincing. We'll be right back with more after this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
wrestling organization. See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace Muta, the original Misfit, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray Ray, Insane Shane, and current AWO champion D. Mike. As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub On Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub On Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Want to see you? Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub On Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Anybody curious, the song that was at issue in the uh, Stairway to Heaven suit was a song called Taurus, T-A-U-R-U-S. And you can find it on YouTube. Have you listened to them? Are they similar? I've listened to them. Um, I don't hear really any similarity. And I want to point out, too, that that particular strain, I found a... 16th century song that had a similar chord structure whatever I took I took music so long ago I've forgotten the terminology <laughs> right but I mean it's you know it's a pretty common uh it's a pretty common thing right <clears throat> so and the what happened in the in the stairway to heaven suit was basically the jury found that the music which was what was copyrighted for Taurus and the music for stairway to heaven were not similar mhm and that was uh Taurus the music was copyrighted copyrighted in 1967 and so an earlier version of the copyright law Applied rather than the copyright law in 1976, which expanded to allow uh, perform performance versions. Uh, 
Okay. And that was that was the basically that's what I gleaned from reading the Ninth Circuit opinion today while I was trying to prepare for this show and <laughs> the show tomorrow night. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> but um yeah, I'll I'll get the um I'll get some of the documents and records from the court, the suit in uh, U.S. District Court, and then the Ninth Circuit decisions, and we'll talk about that over the summer. Okay, outstanding. Or if I get if I get really inspired, I'll move something from the spring down to the summer. Okay. <laughs> so, um. All right, so Flowers filed a writ of certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court appealing the direct appeal decision by the Mississippi Supreme Court. Uh, Those are very rarely granted. However, in the last few years, some issues, the Supreme Court will grant the writ, vacate the conviction, and remand the case to the highest court of the state as to certain issues to re-examine those issues in light of a Supreme Court case that was decided after the direct appeal was finalized by the state court. And that's what they did in this case. There was a case, uh, was it Foster? I can't remember the can't remember the state that it came out of, but the uh, Supreme Court had decided that there was basically in that case, there was a history of uh, discrimination in jury selection and exclusion of African-Americans from juries, and that basically the, you know, the defendant in that case was entitled to relief because he did not get a fair jury. So the case went back to the Mississippi Supreme Court, and after additional briefing, the Mississippi Supreme Court issued reissued its opinion and expanded upon its address of, of its the section of the opinion dealing with the Batson claims raised by Flowers. But again, it found that the reasons offered by the prosecutor for striking each of those five jurors were sufficiently race neutral and no Batson violations were committed. Right. So they affirmed the uh, conviction, sentence, et cetera. Flowers went back to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2017 and uh, filed another writ. The writ was granted, and so merits briefs were filed. And the U.S. Supreme Court in July of last year found in the majority – opinion, which was authored by Judge Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, excuse me, 
Oh, correct. Um, it found that Batson violations were committed in five of the six trials, which is odd because there was no finding of Batson violations in the first trial or the second trial, uh, which were reversed on other grounds. Um, mm-hmm. So even if there was an error, <laughs> the trials, the convictions didn't stand anyway. Right. Um, and they found there was disparate questioning of Af- the African-American veneer. They cited some statistics, but I am not really sure where they got those stati- statistics because the statistics were not included by the Mississippi Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. As far as the number of questions asked to the African-American members of the jury panel. And oddly enough, the only juror that they found to have been improperly excluded was Carolyn Wright. And this is a woman who had worked with Flower's father, had been sued by Tardy's Furniture, and um, I think there was a third reason given by the prosecutor. And, and she knew more witnesses who would be testifying at the trial than any other juror. Wow. And they found a problem with her being dismissed? Correct. They did. Okay. Um, just, <laughs> Justice Alito wrote a very, a very interesting concurring opinion um, he felt that because the crime occurred in a small town in a relatively small jurisdiction that is Montgomery County Mississippi that um, that was the reason for all of the problems that, that we saw in the case which is probably true um, had it happened in a larger jurisdiction, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't even be talking about it, basically, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so then Justice Thomas, with Justice Gorsuch joining him, filed a dissent, which was very interesting. Um, he basically did not feel that the writ should have ever been granted. And Justice Alito was against granting the red originally. Um, he felt that the Supreme Court had actually gone into territory that it really shouldn't be going into because the Supreme Court, the majority pretty much crafted their own set of facts to justify their decision. And some of those facts are probably extrajudicial. They're not part of any of the court record. They're part of something else, which we'll get into in a few minutes. Um, and then he pointed out that you know, the prosecutor was criticized for misrep- making misrepresentations during the Batson hearing before the trial court, and yet there were numerous errors made by, the, by Flowers' counsel in its briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs> He's like, what's up with that? <laughs> you know, 
because they're saying Tardy had a son, which she didn't. She had a daughter. Um, and he also finally uh, he pointed out that the uh, Flowers Council spare number of questions to white jurors. And the strikes used by Flowers Council eliminated all of the white jurors that he could. He probably ran out of strikes because the the population is higher, you know, higher white population than there is an African American population. Or a higher percentage of white citizens after for cause. You still there, Michael? Yes, ma'am, I'm still here. I'm just listening to everything and trying to absorb. I I can't get over a lot of this stuff. Like it it's just confusing a lot of the way things are going in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It definitely stands out from a certain mm-hmm. perspective just like how how many opportunities and all this stuff like nobody can say this dude ain't getting uh, enough bites at the apple. That's for damn sure. Right. And I I think that yeah, his uh the fact that his convictions have been reversed four times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this guy has definitely gotten his fair shake, in in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he he may he he may or may not be getting another. Oh, dude. Um. Doug Evans, who was the original prosecutor, he has recused himself from the case. Well, I mean, honestly, I'd be fed up by this point, too. Yeah. Well, I I don't think that's it, though. I think it's the fact that he has been labeled by the U.S. Supreme Court as uh, basically committing – Violating constitutional rights in five out of six trials. Right. When that isn't what happened, because only one case was reversed based on a Batson violation, and that was a Batson violation as to a single juror. Right. In other words, either the trial court or the Mississippi Supreme Court found that his explanations for elimination of a single African-American juror were not contextual and not, not sufficiently race neutral, which is bullshit, but okay. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, that he has been labeled by the U S Supreme court as improperly excluding a woman who had worked with flowers, father who had been sued by the victim or by her family after her death, and her daughter was a witness at the trial, and had knew more witnesses in the case than any other juror. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, he has recused. The judge asked the Mississippi Attorney General's office to assume jurisdiction, and they 
agreed, and an attorney has been appointed to represent the state. Uh, Flowers also filed a request for bail, which was granted, I believe, in December. Oh, what the and fuck? He's been released on. He's been released on two hundred fifty thousand dollars bail, and he has to wear an ankle monitor. You have got to be shitting me. No, I'm not. Wow. So, um, right now, I haven't found anything uh, as to whether or not there will be a seventh trial or not. Oh, my. Wow. So, I would expect that the uh, attorney who was appointed is now reviewing the record from all the previous trials and meeting with the police and, and the different uh, witnesses and trying to decide whether she can even go to trial. Uh, seven you know what? Uh, at the end of the day, people want to talk about how defendants are mistreated in the jury system and so on and so forth. This is a blatant my goodness, this is blatant on the other direction, in my opinion. Yeah. Because if he's not tried... Now, the only thing is, he has served... Uh, he was arrested in 1996. So he has served 23 to 24 years. But... I mean, you're talking about somebody that reasonably has been convicted and sentenced to death. I mean, 20 right. years. So, I, oh. and he served ten of those on. He served ten of the ten of those on death row. Mm. Or nine on death row. But um, yeah, we'll we'll have to see what happens with that. And I will. I'm going to be keeping a lie an eye on it. And um, then the other thing I wanted to to go into, um, we have a lot of television shows and podcasts that are, quote, investigating cases. Right. Most of them are coming in 15, 20 years after the fact. They're tracking down trial witnesses. They're tracking down jurors. And then they are getting statements from those jurors or statements from those witnesses and broadcasting them on television or on their podcasts and holding them out as being exculpatory or proving someone's innocent or proving someone else's guilty. Now, the problem with that is that the witnesses recanting to your podcast is not a sworn judicial process. Right. It's an extrajudicial unsworn statement so when 
Flowers Council brings it into court, it's hearsay. Absolutely. It's an out-of-court statement, unsworn, not subject to cross-examination, and offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted, i.e., our client is innocent. The In the Dark podcast looked at the Flowers case, and, for example, they talked to Odell Hallman, who testified regarding a confession by Flowers at four trials. Mm-hmm. He recanted. He claimed he was – he told the prosecutor what the prosecutor wanted to hear. Uh, he claims that he used the prosecutor to get out, get himself out of trouble, uh, which is all well and good. But he could go. He could theoretically go into court and say, "Oh, that podcast, yeah." I told him what he wanted to hear because he wouldn't leave me alone. Yeah, absolutely. Or he said he was going to accuse me, so I gave him what he wanted to hear. Right. Uh, two other witnesses who testified placing uh, flowers either near tardy furniture or near um, Doyle Simmons's car the morning of the murders. They've also recanted. They claim they were either induced by the award, reward that was offered or pressured by police to inculpate Curtis Flowers. Again, um, yeah, if they testify as witnesses, and you know what's going to happen too, is even though they're saying to you that they lied, their testimony was not truthful at trial, um, if they're not going to go into court and get up on the stand and put their hand on the Bible and say that in court, it's right. not going to be part of the. It's not going to be part of the record. Absolutely. Because this People is all an out statement, and we remember in the um, in the West Memphis Three case, they wanted Vicki uh, Hutchison to testify at one of the Rule Thirty Seven hearings, but the prosecutor was not going to grant her immunity on perjury charges, so she refused to testify. And so they refused to testify about recanting their their testimony at trial. Again, you're in the same boat because their out of court statement that they they recanted is not gonna is not gonna carry a lot of weight. Um, and I think that uh, with the number of witnesses and the the gunpowder residue, the shoe, uh, the evidence of the shoe print. Uh, the money found in the headboard, nobody's ever explained. Um, I, I think that the state can convict Curtis Flowers without Odell Hallman. Right. Or, you know, like I said, if Odell Hallman um, was, you know, played the prosecutor, he could have just as easily played the podcasters. Agreed. Um, now, there are some. Claims by the defense and by In the Dark podcast that a 380 weapon pistol was found under someone's mother's house 
near the Tardy Furniture crime scene, um, that it was turned over to police and then subsequently lost. Um, that doesn't benefit Curtis Flowers because there's no evidence whether that gun belonged to Doyle Simpson, and there's nothing connecting. It doesn't hurt Curtis Flowers because there's nothing connecting it to the murders, but it doesn't help him either because there's nothing that says it was Doyle Simpson's gun. Right. In that exactly. part of town, it could have been another 380. Um, and then the podcast came up with some alternate suspects, uh, which is interesting that they want to they want to free Curtis Flowers because he's innocent, but they want to send one of these guys to death row. Right. And the first is a guy by the name of Willie James Hempel. He was initially investigated. Uh, apparently their information about him comes from the uh, police records, which would have been in the pro- in the possession of the defense attorneys because they have not once alleged any Brady violation. Right. And he was eliminated as a suspect very early on. Um, again, you know, this is something they look at his history. He was a shoplifter. In fact, at the time of the murders or around the time of the murders, shortly after the murders, he had some shoplifting charges. Um, He's been violent with people since 1996. But from what little bit I could find about him prior to 1996, there's no history of violence. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, you know, the Rodney Reed people with Jimmy Finnell. Because he raped a woman in 2007, that means he killed Stacy in 1996. Oh, good. Even Lord. though prior to 1996, there's no evidence of violence in his history. Mm-hmm. Aside from a single allegation on a traffic stop of a guy who basically ran a stop sign, refused to pull over, drove to his house, ran toward his house, got caught, resisted arrest, and then his family got involved. And, you know, oh, he wouldn't do that. That's not him. He wouldn't do that. You know, why are you arresting him? What are you doing? You know, that kind of chaos. Watch any cops episode. Watch live PD. The chaos that starts to happen when either a person doesn't want to listen and wants to demand answers or mm-hmm. when a group of people suddenly start interrogating the the officers at the scene. Um, and then there's a, there's a claim about some robbery crew in Alabama, I think in the Birmingham area. As I recall my geography of that part of the country, um, Illinois, Mississippi, Birmingham, Alabama are not close to each other. Not even close. No. no. Um, at, at some point, 
apparently the robbery crew employed machetes, but none of these victims died. All these victims died from gunshot wounds. Right. From a gun, or what was believed to be a gun that was stolen in Winona, Mississippi, on the morning of July 16th. Yeah. Um, And then finally, there's an allegation that two of the members were in Mississippi around the time of the murders. But again, Mississippi's a big state. You got the Gulf Coast, you got the Jackson area, and then you got North Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And you got Macomb and Carrier and Picayune. So Mississippi's a big state, and it doesn't say exactly where they are. And interestingly, the bail request referred to an affidavit by one of the robbery crew saying that the you know the guys were in Mississippi. No such affidavit was attached to that bail request. There was a supplemental request filed, and I didn't look at it. Right. So, okay, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that affidavit was attached. But if you refer to an affidavit in your in your motion or your memo, that should always, 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 always be attached. Yes. You should not supplement your memo and attach something that should have been attached the first time. That's just poor practice. It's malpractice, frankly. Um, and had he been denied bail, I'm sure Curtis Flowers would have had no problem suing you. <clears throat> and then finally, Doyle Simpson. Apparently, they've decided that Doyle Simpson, because he reported the break-in of his car at 11 a.m. after the murders had been discovered, that was all a ruse to hide the fact that he killed Miss Tardy, Miss Rigby, Mr. Golden, and Derek Stewart. Oh, good Lord. Um, and, you know, they, they talk about some inconsistent statements that somebody saw flowers near the car at 7.15, but then uh, Mr. Simpson was at the car two times before 10 o'clock and didn't see that the car had been broken into or something weird like that. But it's just, it's, it's actually extra judicial. It's conclusory allegations. It's not part of the court record. It's what the attorney wants the court to believe, but it's not necessarily based on testimony or evidence. Right. And it's, it's not the only interpretation I mean, sure, maybe he did go to the car. Maybe he went in the trunk for something, and he didn't look into the interior of the car to see that the the glove compartment had been broken open. Right. True. um, Maybe he opened the door, threw something in. He was apparently at work that morning, so opened the door, threw something in the car, closed the door, and walked away. He didn't examine, and then finally when he went to the car – perhaps to get in and drive it home at 11 a.m., he saw that the car had been broken into. You know, we don't know. And I would like to read the the entirety of of, uh, Mr. Simpson's testimony because it would be interesting to see 
whether the defense is taking one or two sentences and ignoring the whole of the testimony. Because that's right. a common defense attorney, a def- common defense attorney trick of <laughs> taking one or two sentences and ignoring to the testimony. Okay. So, so that is um, Curtis Flowers. The case against Curtis Flowers. He. Uh, May or may not stand trial the seventh time. I think it's an injustice to the victims. Absolutely. That you know, that's still my biggest thing is it's bullshit for the so, people who passed away. I I think that in light of what has happened with the two mistrials and the difficulty of picking a racially diverse jury. I think that perhaps the state, which can ask for a change of venue, if they proceed to a seventh trial, I think they should request a change of venue. Mm-hmm. Because if they go to, you know, like Hines County down in Jackson, they have a much larger population. And it will make picking a jury that is fair to both sides to Mr. Flowers and to the state, uh, it will make it much more, much easier. Right. So that is that. I will keep everyone posted on what happens with Mr. Flowers' trial. Absolutely, please. And I will check that supplemental motion on the bail to see if the affidavit is there. Right. So, and um, as those of you who follow me on Facebook have seen, uh, I am going to be joining a new podcast as a co-host with Brad Hicks and Cody Downs. It's called No Country for Conspiracy. And we're going to be looking at different things, true crime cases, conspiracy cases, and maybe even some paranormal cases or paranormal topics. Tomorrow night, we will be revisiting the Unabomber case. Ooh, that'll be a good Which is going to be very interesting. Yes. Absolutely. And um, I guess anyone who knows me and anybody who's listened to this show – uh, will probably know. I will kind of be the voice of reason. Right. You'll be the because skeptic, I guess, would be a good... Uh... The skeptical reason, yeah. Because, uh, you know, I look at motives mm-hmm. and I, you know, kind of take things to uh, look at whether it's logical For example, you know, Kaczynski, preview. First of all, I don't understand what his freaking problem was. He was not a kid who went into the juvenile system because he was always talking about, I hate living in the system. I hate living in the system. It's like, what freaking system did you live in? He hated technology. What, you know, what 
why do you hate, what are you, a Luddite? (laughs) Luddites were were people who destroyed textile machinery in the early 19th century because they felt that the textile machinery was replacing skilled workers in favor of unskilled workers because the unskilled workers could run all the machines in the textile factory. And the skilled textile factory workers were not needed to do the textile work like weaving and things of that nature so they broke the machinery right and um, I I think somebody needs to go to the you know the prison where he is in Colorado and show him a smartphone and watch him just lose his mind (laughs) (laughs) Like do a Google Google search. Taking the there you are, Ted. You're on. You're not only you're not only in the system. You're a part of it now. Right. (laughs) That's what Ted Kaczynski did. To this day, just absolutely makes no sense, and he was so intelligent. Right. Right. I mean, he had a, a genius IQ. Mm-hmm. So, um, and for he did choose a he did choose an area of math that was solved in the '60s. So he he would have been out of a job as a mathematician uh, very early on if he hadn't decided to drop out of society. <clears throat> so, so it's going to be interesting. Oh yes, absolutely! I can't wait to hear it. So, what kind of dogs are Haley getting you? Uh, I think it's part German Shepherd and part something else. Oh, cool! Yes, yeah. ma'am. Is it German? Is it going to be big? No, no, it's going to stay medium. I think it's mixed with something small. Oh, okay. All right. Find out what the part something else is. Okay. You got to be careful because, like, we have a cockapoo, and the poodle part is fine, but the cocker spaniel part is stubborn, mm-hmm. willful, and turns into devil dog every now and then. <laughs> of course. So, you know, like German Shepherd, yay, cool, but um, depends on what the other part is. Right. Like Beagle, good Lord, those those things will follow their nose off a cliff. <clears throat> yeah, very true. We had na- we had neighbors at one point that had beagles, and we would find those dogs all over the neighborhood and just pick them up and bring them home. Like, okay, he followed a scent somewhere. <laughs> Here he is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. And uh, my dad had a basset hound that used to climb up into the barn. He'd climb up into the hayloft, and then he would um, he would yowl and howl until someone came up to the hayloft and bring him down. 
<laughs> because he could climb up the ladder, but he couldn't climb down the ladder. Ah, and I think you. he weighed about 70 pounds. And so my dad, who was skinny, would have to climb up the ladder and then carry 75 pounds of squirming dog back down the ladder out of the hayloft. Hmm. So, yeah, Maxwell, Maxwell was a funny dog. Right. So... All right, so yeah, Basset Hound, you're going to be in for a lot of entertainment because German Shepherd and Basset Hound are going to be funny. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. Well, are you ready to put a bow on her? Let's put a bow on her. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Conahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us on Tuesday, March 17th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 3, State of Utah versus Theodore Robert Bundy. We'll talk about the disappearance and presumed murders of multiple women in Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and Utah the discovery of bodies in Washington State, and the attempted kidnapping to Bundy's arrest, trial, and conviction in the state of Utah. We'll also talk about Bundy's escapes, including his successful escape while awaiting trial for murder in Colorado. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.